All right. Welcome to the AdaptX podcast, where we have conversations with individuals who are building accessible businesses or products, advocating for inclusion, or excelling in adaptive sports. Our intention is never to speak on behalf of those with disabilities, but give them a platform to share their experience and amplify their voice. Uh, today, we are joined by Nico Calabria from uh, Massachusetts as well, where Arjun is. Uh, are you still in Mass, actually? I know you've been traveling. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in uh, Concord. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Um, I don't always love to start episodes talking about a diagnosis, but I think it's uh, necessary to provide some context on the topics that we'll talk about throughout the episode. So you were born with congenital hemipelvectomy. Uh, to our listeners who might not be familiar with what that is, which I assume would be uh, most, can you explain what that means? Sure. Well, yeah, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Um, yeah, I was born without my right leg and hip. That's basically what it means. Um, yeah, I have no right leg whatsoever, and it was a surprise to my folks. So I was just born healthy baby, but missing an entire leg. So there was some creative problem solving that had to happen following that. Were you able to connect at any point through childhood or into adulthood with other people with the same condition? Um, definitely in childhood, my, my folks wanted me to or gave me the opportunity to seek those relationships out with other people with similar um, diagnoses or disability. Um, I didn't want it though. I really, I didn't feel comfortable with my identity as a disabled person growing up. You know, the internalized ableism of the world definitely was something I was experiencing. Um, so I definitely uh, kept that part of my life at arm's length for, for some time. Not until I started playing adaptive sports that I really start building those genuine relationships and coming to terms with that part of myself. That's, I would imagine that's going to be an important theme that we'll talk about a little bit later in terms of how adaptive sports and representation are essential to someone's identity. But do you think mentally there's a difference between being born um, as an amputee versus acquiring a disability later in life? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I just woke up this way, you know? Um, this is all I've ever been. So it's just kind of who I am. And I think that folks who go through a, a experience losing a limb, you know, they, they understood what life was like on two legs prior to losing their leg. And I think there's kind of a redefining process that takes place. Um, you know, my, I, I haven't had to redefine myself. I've just defined myself, you know, as someone with one leg for my whole life. Um, so I think that particularly through trauma or um, something like that. I think there is a, a mental difference for sure as far as um, one's perspective on their disability and their identity around being a disabled person. Not to speak yeah, for everybody. Ten- <laughs> no, right, yeah. I guess there's a tendency to see disability as something that's lesser than, but you've um, achieved and experienced more than a lot of people, um, especially at uh, your young age. So um, I know there's a lot more success to come. So how did your parents kind of like influence um, your ambition and kind of help you cope and navigate um, your disability? Yeah, I think they had a tough love mentality and certainly looking at things through an asset-based lens rather than a deficit mindset. Um, you know, yeah, you have one leg, but you're going to need to figure things out for yourself as we go forward. So, you know, I had the same list of chores as my siblings and the same kind of expectations to get things done, even though they might have been harder or required 
creative problem solving to figure out. Like I didn't like taking out the trash. You know, I walk on forearm crutches, so it's like that job really is a pain for me. Um, but you know, I can figure it out and I can I can get it done. So I think just having high expectations and high levels of support throughout my upbringing, I was I was blessed to have um, parents who were both you know, didn't coddle me, but also offered the support that I needed to, to be successful, you know, advocating on my behalf to, for inclusion in sports for, um, you know, just about anything. And yeah. And then a tough love kind of figure it out mindset. Yeah. I think high expectations is essential. Um, it's something that, and maybe it's perpetuated by the narrative that you often see in media and literature, et cetera, about disability, but um, kind of this like hopeless narrative that requires someone swooping in to uh, support and save. And I think uh, the more stories like yours that get shared, uh, the expectation that the general public have for disability changes. Uh, and I think that's essential. Um, so appreciate you uh, spearheading that to some degree as well. But growing up, did you ever like resent your disability or do you recall specific challenges um, that you faced? Sure. I mean, yeah, things are it's just it's like my hands are occupied. I'm constantly, you know, it, just the challenges of mobility and carrying a tray to the, to the lunch table, you know, just feeling like I stand out when I like hang out with people that are below the knee entities, you know, paper cuts, like we call them in the industry. It's like, what is your impairment like really? I know it's obviously this is a disability, but like compared to being on crutches and like around some of my amputee soccer teammates, it's like, wow, you guys can wear pants and no one knows that you have a disability. I don't really have that luxury. Um, so I think probably the biggest challenge was just, and remains the uh, feeling like I'm in the spotlight pretty much anywhere that I go. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's interesting. Like, I don't, I don't know if I'd call them I don't know if microaggressions is the right word, but just like the experiences that I have with people on an everyday basis in public who don't understand who I am and what my level of impairments are, what sort of needs I have. Um, it's just frustrating. Like people, people apologize to me all the time, all the time for just being like near, nearby, you know, and it's not lost on me why that's all happening. And it all comes from a good place. Right. Um, but I think that kind of, yeah, just just feeling like I stand out all the time. That was is remains exhausting, lacking anonymity. <laughs> like just um, that that part was definitely tough. I mean, I think also just being excluded at parts of my my childhood. Um, I don't think that really took place all that much, but I do have a few distinct memories of like being bullied and like not being included for having one leg and just like you know having to deal with that too. It's like, you know, you're not going to be able to change anything. Um, so again, asset, just think about assets. Like you can't really get bogged down in things that are out of your control. So um, yeah, just trying to continue with that, just focusing on what I can do. You know, can't, can't control how other people think or feel about me. So just gotta be myself. Did you ever look into getting a prosthetic? Was that an option? Did you ever consider using a wheelchair instead of crutches or? Yeah. So I actually, I learned to walk on a prosthetic from age three to five. Um, but again, missing like the hip and missing the entire leg, you know, the prosthetic like attaches around your waist. It's a bucket seat. Like it's, it 
doesn't really it didn't offer me more mobility than crutches did crutches offer me far more mobility and independence um whereas the leg you know might you know i had a pretty severe limp with that leg like my gait was not like it was very clear that you know i had some sort of um disability even with the pants on and a prosthetic um but yeah as a little kid i just chose pretty early like when i got my first pair of crutches i was like oh i love these like it really gives me the freedom of movement that the prosthetic didn't just this thing kind of weighing me down a little bit kind of dragging it around with me obviously like not being able to articulate my knee or my hip you know it's just every inch you go up in a, in a prosthetic like that you're going to lose efficiency um so yeah uh, i broke my arm when i was in kindergarten was in a wheelchair did not enjoy that um i yeah and have kind of avoided seated sports over the course of my life because I, I prefer standing sports um, but it's been really interesting getting more involved in the disability community and, and seeing, um, what some of the challenges for people who are wheelchair users are, um, in the accessibility space. That's something I didn't really notice growing up. Like, even though I had a disability, I didn't really have mobility impairment, um, or accessibility requirements. So that has been an interesting experience to be around more people with disabilities and really have an eye for accessibility at this point. And, uh, you know, that's not something I grew up with necessarily. Whereas someone who's a wheelchair user, I'm sure that's, uh, kind of front and center as, as they go through their day. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned interactions and communication challenges that, uh, you encounter out in the general public. And now you work on this project, the bionic project. So you are a teacher. Uh, if I understand correctly, you took a break to pursue elite sports, but now you're kind of back into a educator role, albeit like in a slightly different context with the bionic project. So you guys go to schools, uh, I'll let you describe it cause you'll do it better, but you provide in services for elementary schools, middle schools on inclusion and disability. Yeah. Okay. So bionic project, our mission is basically to fight disability bias through education, story, and sport. And we go into K-12 schools, um, colleges, businesses, et cetera. And we do um, basically inclusion work with these, these places. Um, typically, yeah, starting with presentations on some key terms, disability, accessibility, some of the things to give folks a background on uh, the inclusion work that's going on in the space and how to be more inclusive. And then we followed up with some classroom sessions and kind of digging into deeper topics. Cause if you take a look at disability from, there's so many perspectives you could approach it from. Like I'm formerly a history teacher. So like, I love the history of the ADA, looking at the Capitol crawl, looking at, um, you know, just the advocacy work that was done in Northern California and how that spread across the country. Um, you can look at it from a, a STEM perspective. Um, what makes for an efficient prosthetic? How do you design a wheelchair accessible refrigerator? You know, there's like lots of different ways you can take look at the um, the topic of disability from different perspectives and different subjects. So we we like to dig into those uh, and kind of integrate disability work into the ongoing curriculum when we work with these schools. And then we always wrap it up with playing um, an integrated soccer game. We bring a bunch of crutches. Um, we let the kids play amputee soccer. You know, I'll give them a. It is, it is a pretty funny crash course altogether because it's like we don't have a lot of time and we end up working with, you know, hundreds of kids on a week. Um, so they get their, like, 15-minute show on crutches and, you know, it's it's a challenge. 
to be sure to try to learn a new sport like that really quick. But we find that the playing together um, really solidifies some of the inclusion, like it's inclusion in practice, as opposed to, you know, we can come in and, and tell a school like you should be, you should be inclusive. But I think like the experience of play um, is something that really connects people and kind of fights the fear and bias that might be underlying around disability or other things. Um, so that's what the Bionic is, Project is doing. We also host um, inclusive road races in Harvard Square and San Francisco and looking to expand on that as well. Um, yeah, I don't want to talk too much about um, just like, mo I know I saw the monologue in the, uh, the thing, so I don't want to keep going, but I could talk about Bionic for, no. for a while and it's been a really cool. No, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in, in that. So I definitely do want you to, uh, to expand on it. Cause I, I think I'm, I'm interested cause I think, uh, I'm very, um, how, how do I want to say this? I'm very interested in why kids look at disability the way that they do, um, and what experiences can possibly change that. I mean, I had no introduction to disability until I was in high school. Uh, so it wasn't until I first volunteered with Special Olympics uh, when I was 15 that I was exposed to really my first person with a, with a visible disability. Um, and I can't recall what my interactions were like with people with disabilities prior to that, but I know what they were like after and I know it completely changed my life. So I'm very interested in how to influence, I guess, the next generation to adopt more inclusive mindsets mm. um, and look at accessibility. Because like you said, like designing a, a refrigerator for a wheelchair user never, never would have crossed my mind at all through middle school, high school, et cetera, if I hadn't had those experiences. So um, I guess how, how are you guys approaching uh, changing mindsets? How do you think you'd do so beyond that one day that you offer a clinic and then maybe do you have any means of gauging the like the efficacy of the in services because that's another thing that i'm interested in with like the course that i teach uh, it's great if people go through the curriculum but if they don't then implement uh, it doesn't really matter it doesn't have a lasting impact unless they actually take action with it so a bunch of different things there but like i guess um how do you guys measure uh the success of the clinics that's a great question. I would say right now, the we're collecting qualitative data, just kind of survey feedback, um, open response on largely teacher um, and administrator uh, feedback. But I think it's a, a good point that you bring up, just like how do we measure the efficacy of, of the work that we're doing? I think um, one of the things that kind of got the Bionic Project's education branch started was a study that came out from Harvard that looked at um, basically trends in bias against different groups, um, whether it was like racial, sexual orientation, gender identity, religion, et cetera. Um, those all seem to be actually decreasing over time, um, kind of explicit or implicit bias around those things is decreasing due to the DEI work that's being done in the spaces. Um, but the evidence found that disability bias was actually kind of a stubborn topic and didn't, doesn't seem to be changing all that much. Um, and I think that just speaks to a larger point where, like you said, Brendan, like you didn't really have an experience with a disabled person until you were in high school, right? Or you don't, you don't recall what those were. Like there probably wasn't that much representation or, you know, there probably wasn't a disabled person teaching in your, in your school. I don't, who knows? 
Um, but it kind of calls to the fact that there's a lack of um, work that's being done in this space right now, or a need for the work to to improve or increase. Because um, when we look at DEI, like in, especially in the last five years, it's really been focused around race and gender, um, leaving kind of this this space for disability that um, you know needs to be addressed as well. Like, again, going back to that Harvard study. Um, so yeah, I don't know exactly. Like we we don't measure the efficacy right now. It's a great point for something to focus on going forward. I think that we approach our approach really comes to the idea that familiarity fights fear. Um, if you have genuine connections and the ability to ask questions to a person with a disability um, in an appropriate setting, a setting that is designed for that to happen, to take place, for the curiosity of children to be addressed um, by people with disabilities, that I think really starts to show that just there's a connection. We can have a connection as people, and then like, yeah, you, let's learn about disability together as well. Um, you know, especially when you play with like younger kids, it's like play is so important for building relationships and and seeing that someone that looks different or has a physical disability isn't something to be afraid of. Because when you think about more often than not what people's experience with disability is. It's a, a child pointing or saying something loudly about a person with a disability that they see on the street and their parents being like freaked out and, and you know, embarrassed that their kid is asking a question and then kind of shooing them away. Right. And when you children are very perceptive to body language, to the vibe, right, they might not be able to describe it, but they can feel it. And if that is what your experience with disability is, you are creating fear in some ways that this is something that's different. It's not something to be talked about. It's taboo. Um, so coming into the schools and being very open, it's like, we are here to answer your questions, to, to talk about our experiences and to play a game together, um, gives children the space to really just ask their, you know, address their curiosity and not feel like disability is something that's off topic or, or um, that's, that's not on limits, right? Um, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's something that I've mentioned in a few other episodes as well, like, the tendency for a, a kid to maybe look inquisitively at a wheelchair and then a parent to be like, oh, no, stop staring. Uh, and it's just kind of reinforcing this idea, like, oh, don't interact with anyone who looks different than you. Like, don't interact with people with disabilities. Like, you don't want to offend them. And then it kind of just becomes ingrained, like you said, familiarity over fear. Like, I'm going to be afraid to say something to someone with a disability that my parent just said might be offensive so then I just ignore the situation outright and I never kind of take the step to engaging with that so I I wonder I guess I feel like the curriculum that you guys share or these in services that you provide should be mandatory in every school um, like you spend so much time on academics and I'm not sure how much you retain but you have a you have an opportunity to influence the entire generation on how they see disability and what lens they go into adulthood uh, seeing it through. And I think that would have larger dividends than really most academic subjects, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's in I my think, bias. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm biased in that way, obviously, but I think it's really important to give to give kids an experience with people with disabilities. Um, and yeah, and I think ideally what will happen is, you know, we don't have the, the stretch or the reach to 
be in every classroom, right? But it would be nice to um, work with a school grade every year so that kids that are coming into a middle school, into a high school, have an experience with Bionic Project and um, kind of, you know, build that, that baseline of inclusive uh, language, inclusive ideas, and, you know, can carry that through their, their education. But I agree, it's like those types of experiences, I think when we look back at our education, like things like that typically stand out. Whereas like, you know, that one more day in math class or one more day in, in English class, did that really, you know, it kind of blurs together. <laughs> and I think another um, important thing, Brendan, just to, to kind of wrap up that last topic is, you know, we want people to have familiarity and be able to act, like interact with people with disabilities, but we also don't really want, or at least I don't really want people to be coming up to me in public spaces and constantly asking me about my disability, right? So it's like, you know, people with disabilities have different comfort levels of wanting to answer questions about their disability. You know, I, I think just the, the constancy of having to be kind of like on display for the public and need to be like, I want to represent people with disabilities well. I want to be like kind and answer this, this little kid's question and say like, it's okay to not, you know, to ask questions. But it's also like doing that over and over and over again. When someone, again, going back to trauma, it's like if someone has lost their leg in a traumatic event, they shouldn't need to answer questions about their disability, you know, which could be triggering in a lot of ways to do that over and over and over again. So again, creating a space that is dedicated to having children be able to ask and have their questions answered by people with disabilities is something that, and then we talk about that. It's like, is it appropriate to go ask somebody about their disability right away? Well, maybe you should figure out what their name is first. Um, maybe you should know something else about them before you ask them really personal questions about their body. You know, so that type of just background where it's like, if we could get every kid to go through something like this, it, you know, it might make, it make, make a significant difference in eliminating bias. I mean, just as a thought experiment, you said you can't be in every classroom, but, and I'm kind of the same way, like maybe the, the course that I teach can't make it to every gym, but what if I, what if the expectation or the ultimate goal was to be in every gym and what if the ultimate goal was for your curriculum to be in every school? How do you think that would have to be delivered? Can you guys design a curriculum in the same way that you have the common core math standards and a teacher takes them and they implement it. Is there any, or does it lose some of the value, I guess, if an able-bodied teacher is the one who's delivering the curriculum instead of you going in and interacting with the students and kind of having that representation? I think the in-person, I think that's what's different about Bionic. There are other places, other, other organizations that can provide, you know, DEI curriculum on, disability, you know, key terms, historical events. Um, so I think we're, we're not really in the space of trying to, um, I don't know, have like an off the shelf curriculum that deals with these things. You know, Move United actually has a really good kind of adaptive sports curriculum that they're working on. Um, there's some other ones that come to mind. But yeah, I think for us, it's like Bionic, we're, we're all formerly educators. So like, you know, I taught um, middle school history for, for four years and high school history before that. Um, some of the other folks have been like health and wellness teachers that also have disabilities. So I think kind of having, uh, yeah, teachers, you know, trained professional teachers that have disabilities that are now, um, not just delivering a curriculum, but like really, you know, teaching 
it's it's actual teaching. I think that's some of the feedback that we get that that changes it is that um, or that's unique to Bionic is it's clear that we're educators and we come in and we we understand how to like meet children where they're at developmentally to help them you know take away the learning objectives. Whereas if it's just kind of like a curriculum you send over, it's like it, it you know that could be great and a good background, but I think the experience, particularly of playing um, together, makes a big difference as far as um, the stickiness of education. And like so much of the time we see that experiences are some of the most valuable teaching tools. So having that experience of playing amputee soccer with people from the national team, you know, that also, that people will remember that, um, whereas they might not with just the, the book curriculum. Yeah, I mean, I think what you retain is obviously tied to emotion as well and you're probably going to have a much different emotion sitting in a classroom listening than you would out on the field playing soccer um i don't know if this is a it's just something that kind of popped into my head but like some some communities and circles um and some information i've read about like disability simulations um is somewhat frowned upon uh i don't know if this is perfectly applicable to your environment as well but like do you think the idea of um, mimicking or participating as an amputee playing soccer has any negative repercussions? I'm not sure I'm phrasing that well, but I think you might know what I mean. Like sometimes there's companies that'll do like a neurodivergence simulation and provide sensory overload so you can experience what it's like to maybe have autism or um, wear a blindfold and experience what it's like to have a visual impairment. And some people don't like those simulations, uh, the people with the diagnoses themselves, because uh, it kind of makes it seem like it's transient or temporary. Um, do you think there's any negative um, aspect of like a simulation like you guys do? It's a great question. Really, really a great question. And it's something that we've, we've talked about pretty extensively. I don't know if we've come to a, a conclusion on it either. I think... Um, yeah, I. So, I, I guess no. I don't. I don't think that there's negatives to doing it. it. Anyone can play wheelchair basketball, right? It doesn't have to be someone who who has a disability that's playing wheelchair basketball. Everyone can play in a chair and it levels the playing field. Same with amputee soccer. You just pick up your other leg and you can play amputee soccer. The challenge for the kids is not using that other leg to then kick the ball or run on, and that's kind of like what we we challenge them to do. It's like, hey, look, you're gonna. This will be really hard for you because you've got this extra leg that you're not going to be using. But can you do it for 10 minutes? Do you think you can do it for 10 minutes? And then it's really interesting to see which kids are really willing to give that a try and who and who is kind of like, well, I don't really care that much. Like, I just like regular soccer. You know, I'll just like have these crutches in my hands and kind of be running around with two legs. And it's it's it is interesting. I mean, I think. Yeah, what are the benefits of kind of like a day in the life or like a um a simulation i i do think like you said you know experiences and emotions that are are powerful teaching tools and i think then the way that things are framed and this is really what teaching is is like how do you frame experiences and t discuss them right you want to introduce them in a, in a way that sets the stage and then you want to debrief them in a way that like leaves the, the kids with you know on going on the right track and if the heart if the only takeaway is like Oh, having one leg sucks. <laughs> like, no, that's not really what we're going for. I think we're more like, look, amputee soccer is a sport that's being played around around the world and around the country. 
it, it's very challenging to play. Look at the athleticism that's involved. Look at like what it looks like at the highest level. Um, what was challenging about it? What did you enjoy about it? Um, what was different than you expected? And then being able to facilitate those discussions. Um, I don't find that there's really a downside. Um, but I, I also get it. I like, I've thought about the, you know, try to navigate your, your school in a wheelchair or try to navigate your, your, your school blindfolded. Right. I think, yeah, the transient part of, of that, I, I haven't read too much about the research of, of why folks are, um, against these simulations so much other than I think they, it feels like it like leaves people with a pitiable perspective on disability. Um, that's one of the things I've heard at least. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I like experience in the classroom. I'm very much trying to like give kid, kids experiences so that they can learn from them. Um, whereas like just telling somebody something is not going to leave them with the same impression as, as having an experience. But you know, I can only speak for, for my disability in, in my situation. I would love if my yeah. kids went around the, the school day with crutches for a day. Just how it yeah. is. Like, what do you, what did you need help with? Like, what was hard? What was easy? Um, and then debriefing it, having like the space to really debrief it well, I think is where things fall short. If you just leave an experience and kind of like the, in a vacuum, then people will, will form their own perspectives and they may be positive or negative. Whereas if you can do a little bit of framing, um, that might, you know, improve the, the takeaways. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's well articulated. And like you mentioned before, the, the play piece is kind of the part that reinforces the ideas that you shared in the, in the classroom portion. And I think it's an essential part of leaving kids maybe motivated or more interested. Um, Cause at the end of the day, I guess if you're doing a, a one day clinic, the best thing that you can do is leave your students motivated to learn more. Um, and uh, play would, would probably allow people to do that. And like you said, I mean, anyone can play wheelchair basketball. I think it would be awesome if adaptive sports were more regularly a part of the PE curriculum. Even if you look at the research on motor learning, like you can improve specific skills by playing with constraints. So whether it's playing on one foot amputee soccer or if it's shooting a basketball in a wheelchair, like that can make you better at your skill Um when you're not in those environments and when you're just playing uh, how you traditionally do. So I think it's, it's interesting. I would, I would love to see it included more in PE. But um, you mentioned soccer. Obviously, uh, it took us a half hour to get there. But you are the, uh, the captain of the U.S. amputee soccer team. Uh, so we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit deeper. But in high school, you played traditional soccer, correct? Yep. Um, this may sound like a foolish question, I guess, but like, did you have any advantages being on crutches? Was there any resistance in allowing you to participate? Um, <laughs> I don't think I had any advantages. Um, other people did, but um, <laughs> yeah, I remember. I remember in uh, 2013, I or maybe it was 2000, yeah, 2012 fall season, my senior year, I made the varsity program at Concord Carlisle High School. It was a really strong soccer program. They actually just won a state title this year. They've been winning state titles. So it's a, it's a competitive program. And I, I made the program on merit at like kind of the bottom end of the team. Didn't see much playing time, but um, yeah, the way that I played, I grew up playing soccer with crutches. And I, I, when I was a kid would like touch the ball with my crutches. Definitely an advantage when I was doing that. Um, and it was something that people definitely like looked down on. Um, 
But then when I learned more about amputee soccer and the rules and, you know, understood that it's a handball to be touching the, the ball with your crutches on purpose, um, I stopped doing that in order to prepare and train. And I was in middle school. So from middle school through high school, I was playing just with one foot. Um, the folks who think it's an advantage to be playing soccer with, with one less foot, I, uh, you've done some impressive mental gymnastics. But um, I do remember in 2012, like making this team and I scored one goal in that season. Um, and it was one of the most beautiful goals I've ever scored. It was off a corner kick. It comes to the far post. I like back up off the ball and then kind of do like a really high side volley. Um, just, you know, caught the ball flush, put it into the corner, you know, one of the best goals I've ever scored. And it was caught on video and then it went viral on YouTube. Um, it made it onto Barstool. And I remember like being a high school senior and then like seeing, reading through the comments on that video, which is a no-no. <laughs> like, if you want to see the toxicity of, of the human, of humankind, like that's the place to go. Um, yeah. So I remember just seeing like lots of people, um, you know, just saying like, this is cheating, like he has such an advantage. And it's just like, all right, well, haters are going to hate and I'm just going to keep doing my thing. But um, yeah, I remember moving to Massachusetts from Indianapolis when I was nine years old. Um, I remember the referees association basically saying, you know, this is unsafe and, you know, also kind of an affront to the game. Um, and my folks uh, had to fight basically to have me included when I moved here. Um, I have this yeah, distinct memory of my dad standing in front of this panel of referees and he used would pad my crutches with PVC pipe insulation. And then he was like whacking himself in the head with it in front of his group to basically say like, look, it's like, it's, it's safe enough, like for the, for the like run of play. And they were, their concern was, well, what if he uses this as a weapon? And then he like put on a cleat and said like, well, I can come cleat you too. And like, it's a weapon there. It's, it's about, you know, his behavior and being able to maintain his temper, which I remember him telling me, he's like, Nico, I'm going to take your crutches away if you ever use them as a weapon. Because you're just like, <laughs> I was like, damn, dad, that's, uh, it's intense. But um, yeah, definitely was excluded growing up in some ways. And then over time, um, yeah, made it, made it work playing traditional soccer. And then it was honestly a very interesting transition to start playing amputee soccer, which is similar in a lot of ways and uh, different in, in others. You mentioned it came on your radar maybe around middle school is when you want to start uh, trending towards following the legitimate rules. But um, I don't recall amputee soccer really ever being on my radar until the last few years. So what was what was the landscape of amputee soccer like, I guess, 10 years ago when you were in high school? Uh, not much of a landscape, really. Yeah. It was um, in... I think it was 2005 or something. I, a uh, picture of me in the paper playing soccer with crutches, um, was seen by the president of the American Amp Soccer Association at the time, a guy named Rick Hoffman. And he basically got in touch with my family and reached out and said, Hey, did you know that this sport exists and like is being played in, you know, 20 something countries right now? And we'd love him to come out for the, the U S team when he turned 16. So then 10 years of, of nothing, like there's no youth clinics, there's no like, opportunities for development, et cetera. At that point in time, the, the national team was getting together like once every two years, maybe once every four years, just to go to a world cup. Um, who can make it, who can pay for a ticket? Um, you know, who's available to take time off work to come. Isn't this so great that we're able to play? Um, 
And I think a big part of like my story in amputee soccer has been being a part of and helping lead the team from that of like a participation kind of like charity um, sport towards one of kind of like elite competition and, um, you know, professional, professional athletes. So yeah, between uh, that photo being seen and playing my first match when I was 16, there was nothing happens. Um, and then even like the last, maybe from 16 to like 20, yeah, 2014 World Cup through the 2018 World Cup and then beyond, it's like there wasn't that much happening. Um, but there is a ton happening now, which is super, super exciting. And the reason that I left my teaching job, as you mentioned earlier, it was tough. I was like uh, teaching full time at a public school, coaching soccer and wrestling, running these regional amputee soccer practices, potentially flying to different parts of the country or around the world to play soccer a couple times per year. And if that didn't line up with like school vacation, then it was like, I'm already a teacher, you get tons of time off. But if it didn't line up, I was taking like weeks off to go play in Mexico. And it was just, it was just way too much to try to be training full time um, and do all of that. So yeah, that's why I stepped back from teaching and I'll be back to it full time um, once my, like, you, my competitive career is over. Um, but that's why Bionic has been such a fantastic place to be because it's really like connecting all of my passions and it's on a part-time basis. So it allows for flexibility and training and getting to these competitions and tournaments. Um, so it's been a, it's been a really good, you know, bringing together of, of all these different things that I've been interested in. There's really no one that is having a greater influence on the popularity of the sport than you, correct? <laughs> Uh, you, can, you can say that and you, you don't, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you won't agree to that, but, um, are there other people that you're working closely with that are, cause I mean, I see you everywhere. You're flying somewhere for a clinic. You're flying somewhere for a training in Colorado. Um, like who, who else I guess is, is kind of spearheading this movement? Yeah. Well, I would definitely sh shout out my uh, teammate and, um, one of my best friends, Joe Vaughn Booker, who's a striker on the national team. And I think the two of us, um, well, we're, we're just trying to, to lead by example. Um, you know, taking a step away from teaching, like that, that was a salary that was gone. Um, and something where it was like, I didn't really know how I was going to make ends meet in order to pursue this. Joe Vaughn was a health and wellness teacher and he did the same thing. And we want to play professionally. We want to play amputee soccer professionally. And essentially we're going to fake it till we make it because right now there's not a, there's no salary associated with playing this sport. Um, and it, it's not, it's not like it's about money, but it is like, I need to put, put food on the table. Yeah. Um, and we want to try to help, you know, bring the sport forward. So the next generation of players can pursue this as a career. Um, you know, no one's going to be rich, rich off of it, but you know, at least people who want to, spend their young years doing this and taking it as far as they can will have the opportunity to do it. So Jovan and I from the player side and then um, from the kind of um, association side, organizational side, there's plenty of folks, Eric Lamberg, our president, James Pierre Glaude, our treasurer, um, many others who I'm not mentioning are definitely doing the work. Um, and it's on a volunteer basis. And I think that's been one of our biggest challenges is like, we're going up against these teams, Turkey, for example, being the best in the world. Those guys are pros. They, they train year round, like they get a salary to play amputee soccer and you see them win world cups because 
they treat it like a profession. Um, I'm treating it like a profession sans salary. And so is Jovan. And we're hoping that like over time, we're going to be able to provide more opportunities for, for people to play. And ultimately we just need to get touches on the ball because these other places are playing year round and don't have the same kind of geographic and financial constraints that we do to get our teams together. Um, so that's our biggest challenge is figuring out like, how do we get these touches on the ball? Everyone's working, right? So it's like, people can't just take a week, like take multi, like, like I was dealing with at my, my old job. You can't just take multiple weeks off to like go do this without it being compensated for it and losing the compensation that you're from work. So there's a lot of challenges to being a competitive team and we're just trying to lead by example and, you know, make, make ends meet in other ways and then be, be training like a professional on the rest of the time. What have you learned from those countries like Turkey, England, and France that have domestic leagues? Uh, is there anything that you can bring that they, uh, anything that they do that you can bring to the States? Totally. Yeah. I mean, I, there's, you don't have to look far for a good model of what's successful. Turkey, Poland, England, Mexico, um, Costa Rica. It, it's really the idea of you need to have regional programs that are strong and playing on a regular basis, well-funded, well-run, well-organized, um, so that you can raise the expectation for your players. Um, if the expectation is like, oh, like this is a whole all-volunteer thing, like we do it as best we can, like it's okay if you can't make it. It's like, no, I want to I want to fundraise and be able to stipend all the players on the New England Revolution team. No, no, you have to make it to practice. You're being paid to like be here. Like you need to train like, like you're a professional for this sport. Um, and that's on the competitive side of things, right? There's also the grassroots um, participation pathways underneath that where, you know, kids are just getting their, their chance to play. People who want to play on the recreational side have an opportunity. But for the competitive side, that's what we see being successful elsewhere is that people make serious commitments, both like time and financially towards the sport. Um, and then those teams competing with one another in different parts of the country are, you know, that builds your national team player pool. Um, so the success we've seen between New England, New York, um, a few of the other startup regions that we have has been really exciting to see because we've been talking literally for a decade about getting regional teams started. And it's just a heavy lift. Like it's hard to get people together. It's hard to find the, the, the resources, um, getting the in-kind donation of field time, et cetera, to, to be able to play. And then I've got dudes that are driving from Connecticut and dudes that are driving from New Hampshire on a weeknight, right? You might be doing like two and a half hours one way to come to a practice where six people show up, but the people want to play. And um, the success that we're seeing on the regional level has been super exciting because it, yeah, it just goes to show people are playing now. People are playing now. Whereas beforehand it was like, you know, whenever we get together for a national team camp, it's going to cost about $25,000, to fly everybody in, lodge them, get field time. And then you get like two and a half days on the ball twice per year. Like that is not a winning, that's not a winning program. Um, but that's all that we can do right now. So it's, it's been, yeah, I could, I could talk about this for, for a long time, but it's, it's been really cool to see like the development of the league. I've been a, a big part of helping that get going. Um, the new England team here and, and now these other league uh, teams that are started in different parts of the country are, are coming along. So um, giving people that access on a local level has been a huge step forward for us. The revolution have been big supporters of your program. Is there a reason why 
all MLS teams aren't following suit. I'm sure you guys are working on that. Uh, yeah. Well, it's interesting. It's a mixed bag. MLS clubs, you know, they're all their own entities and they have different priorities. New England was just, they knew me for, they've known me for a long time and they've been, we've just built a, a really powerful, positive relationship over the last decade, really. Um, in other parts of the country, there are some teams that are, I think it was St. Louis that reached out and was like, hey, we want an amputee soccer team. Like, what do we have to do to get an amputee soccer team? And then we're, we're scratching our heads like, all right, well, we don't have anybody. We don't have any local amputees or players in that region right now. So it's about like building it from from the ground up, which which we're we're working on. But that takes time. That's not just going to a team won't spring up overnight. Um, and then there's other places where we have some challenges with the just the bureaucracy of different teams like New York has like a, probably the best attended regional team in the United States, the most people playing amputee soccer in, in, a, in a locality. And, you know, they're in discussions with NYCFC and New York Red Bulls and trying to take it to the next level where the revolution were just very willing to do that right away. Let us use their name and likeness. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, we would ideally a 10 year goal would be to have a competitive and recreational team for men and women, kids and adults in all of the MLS uh, franchise areas. That's a huge, that's a huge goal, but um, incrementally, if we can get another one each year, we'll be happy with that for sure. Yeah, your endeavor to grow the sport is pretty similar to the process of scaling a business or growing a business. Um, the hope, I guess, is that initially, like when I started my gym, like you might kind of slum it for a couple of years without much of a return and you're waiting to see where you get traction. You're trying to figure out what works. Um, what do you think is the path to profitability or sustain like sustainability for the sport as a whole? Because obviously uh, the sports that are attended the most, have the largest fan bases, et cetera, are the ones that generate the most revenue and excitement. Um, so do you envision that amputee soccer can get there um, or move in that direction? Yeah, I, I hope so. I think that I think that amputee soccer is it's an exciting sport. I think that people that come to watch it, they're entertained. They're entertained by the physicality, the speed, the skill. Um, and I, th I do think it is a marketable sport and something that might be able to generate, um, you know, viewership. I think in the disability sports world, we're looking like it's how much viewership is really other than the Paralympics do we see? Um, and what is the viewership like for Paralympics? So I think it, when we look around the world, Turkey, for example, they sell out stadiums playing amputee soccer in, in Turkey. Turkey's also absolutely soccer crazy, but you know, we don't really have that in the States so much, but I think over time, this will be a sport that is, I hope watched by people, um, across the United States streamed on, on your, on your streaming sites. Um, I think we're a, a while out for that still, but, um, that's one hope. And then I think the, really the way of success for the organization is about, um, moving from this all volunteer nonprofit towards something that is, um, you know, full-time there's full-time staff that are working on it. Um, you know, year rounds. Right now, it's we have these people who have been amazing allies and advocates for the team and for the the community, the limb loss community, limb different community, who have given 
you know, decades of, of service to help grow the sport from where it was when there was literally nothing going on when I was a little kid towards to now where it's like we have a men's national team, a women's national team, a youth program, a regional program, you know, larger funders that are starting to look at it. And I think we're, we've reached the point now where we're ready to kind of take that step into, you know, fundraising to pay somebody to do this work on a full-time basis. Um, and I, yeah, I think that's probably the next step for us as far as, uh, I don't know about profitability so much as sustainability. Um, and really just trying to remove as many barriers as possible for people to access the sport on a regular basis. Cause right now it's, it's too far, few and far between to, to really be a competitive program. You mentioned barriers there and we typically ask, um, most of our guests this at the end of the episodes, but, um, our efforts are more in the fitness space than the adaptive sports space, but, um, I know you're, you're well-versed in, in the fitness world as well. So uh, what do you think needs to be done to make gyms more accessible or inclusive? Um, well, I think for one, having accessible, accessible um, physically accessible spaces is, is obviously a starting point. Um, and yeah, when I, when I think about it, I, I usually break it into the like physical or the technical side and then the social side. So technically it's like, is your gym accessible? Are people, you know, in wheelchairs able to actually access your gym? Are people with a variety of different, um, disabilities able to access your gym? And then on the second side, the social side is like, what sorts of training have, um, folks gone through to work with people with disabilities? Are they well-versed in, um, language around disability are, are they going to be offering a welcoming place, um, where the person with a disability is feeling like this is a gym where they belong, as opposed to constantly being like, wow, that person's so amazing. It's so amazing that they're here and they're, they want to do fitness, you know, like if we're going on the inspiration side of things, or if we're going on like the pity narrative, you know, what is the narrative and the vibe in the gym, um, through the trainers, through the other people that are there, do you see multiple people with disabilities? Um, are disabled people featured in the art and in the space itself? I think there's lots of questions you can ask on the social side too, which is probably trickier. Um, you know, accessibility, it's like, yeah, take it beyond ADA compliance and make sure that it's like really designed in a way that welcomes people with disabilities. Um, and then the actual social work, um, you know, educating, ed educating your, your, your trainers and, um, the folks that are working there on how to interact with people with disabilities and, you know, how to, how to accommodate and, um, adapt exercises so that they can still get, you know, full body workout or whatever sort of workout they're trying to get, um, with the same level of expectation, kind of like going back to that beginning of the conversation where, you know, we want to set high expectations for everybody to be able to, to achieve those and, and not just set the bar really low because somebody has a disability. Do you like being uh, do you like being considered an inspiration? You mentioned the inspiration narrative. Um, I don't like being considered an inspiration because of um, going through my day to day. I I don't mind if people are inspired by my my actual accomplishments. <clears throat> I'm proud of the fact that I took a step away from financial stability, essentially, in the teaching space in order to pursue this and build this game for the next generation. I don't think I'll reap the benefits of that. Um, but yeah, that's something I'm proud of. And if that's inspiring to somebody, then, then that's good because it's like, 
I did something that hopefully is actually inspirational. Um, when I'm going through my day to day and I go to the grocery store and someone calls, just wants to comes up to me and says like, Hey, I just want you to know you're amazing. It's like, I don't really need that. Um, you know, <laughs> so if it's, if the, if the actual accomplishment of a person with a disability is inspiring, fantastic. You can be inspired by that. But if it's just, again, how, where are the expectations? Are we setting them super, super low for people with disabilities or are they set at a reasonable level? Um, but it, it is funny. I think like going through my life and it's, it's the constancy of it that I think is so challenging of just being constantly complimented for just living my life. And it's, it's, it's funny cause it's a bias that is really coming from a place of trying to be positive and, um, people want to make me feel good, right? They want to give me a compliment and, or they want to hold the door for a long time or whatever it is, you know? And it's like, it's, it's the everyday aspect of that, that becomes tiresome. Not so much any one person saying something nice to you, but just, oh, they said something nice. And then the person after them on the hike said something nice. And then the person after them, wow, look at you out here. It's like, thanks man. Like that made me feel really good. Like, and I think a lot of times people, they don't understand that it's like, how am I experiencing this? You are feeling good about yourself because you've complimented somebody with a disability and you've seen that that's something that you should be doing. For me, I was just complimented by the last three people behind you that, that said something similar to me. And then my girlfriend's like, Dude, this is, <laughs> is this always how it is? It's like, yeah, this is like, this is how it, how it is. Yeah. That's an interesting point that they're complimenting you to feel better about themselves. Not, necessarily uh, to make you feel better um but that's probably something that they don't even uh introspectively kind of identify as they do that but uh you mentioned the bionic project host of 5k um a team from my gym will be there it's usually in april correct yep so it'll be the last early may april yeah it's the last sunday in april Let me pull up the date for you perfect um in Harvard Square hopefully we get a little better weather uh weather than last year but totally uh, yeah this year was yeah. pretty this last year was pretty cold. Um, yeah, I believe it is the, uh, yeah, so it's um, April 28th, Sunday, April 28th at 11 a.m. Awesome. Yeah, so we'll have a cohort of people from our gym there running it. Um, Bionic Project, if there's anyone in the audience that works within a school district, the K through 12 school district, uh, and is interested in bringing the clinic to them, you just offering them in Massachusetts? Are you moving a little bit outside? We're, I think we're expanding. Um, we have a pretty good base going in San Francisco as well. But um, I, I'd say like broader New England area, including New York, I think is places we're looking to, looking to go and willing to drive to. Um, the other thing I'd mentioned, Brendan, is that we're looking for educators as well. So people with disabilities who are interested in, in getting involved, you know, um, being involved in the school, the school work, as well as just any of the sporting events. Um, you know, as we expand where I can't be in all these schools, we also don't necessarily just want to do amputee soccer. We're looking to expand the, the types of disability sports that we offer um, to these different districts and businesses. So anyone that wants to get involved, um, I'd love to get in touch with you and, and um, share some more information. Yeah, hopefully we can facilitate some of that as well. I know I and uh, talk to one of my members um, as well to, to see if he was interested in 
in contributing on the education side. So uh, hopefully we can facilitate some more connections there. But uh, Nico, thank you. Uh, it's been a pleasure to get to know you over the last year. And uh, it has been, you might not want to be called inspirational, but it has been inspiring to watch what you've done over the last year. Uh, have followed it closely on social media. And it seems like you're always on the go. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, you've accomplished and you seem to experience more than most, um, not in spite of your disability, but um, as as you are. And I, th I think it is a, a great thing to, to depict to the greater population. So like you mentioned, we can elevate expectations. So uh, thank you for doing the work that you do. Yeah, thanks, Brendan. I, yeah, it's been great getting to know you too. And um, I appreciate everything you said and the work that you're doing for the community. Um, we need more allies and, and more folks that are, um, yeah, advocating for accessibility in, in, in tons of different ways, in different spaces. So I really appreciate the work that you're doing um, with AdaptX, and um, I'm excited to continue to be a part of it in, in whatever, whatever way I can be. Um, but yeah, thank you for all that. Awesome. We'll link uh, Bionic Project 5K as well as the educational endeavor in the show notes. Uh, we'll include some US amputee soccer stuff as well. Uh, but I would strongly encourage anyone who's listening to watch it. It's, it really is equally, if not as more exciting than um, traditional soccer as well. So um, thanks. 